What is going on, everybody? I'm your host, Nicholas Willard, and this is Almost Canon. Now, if you have had an encounter with the paranormal or maybe some sort of cryptid-like creature that you can't explain and you want to share that story, then please get a hold of us. Send us an email at almostcanonpod at gmail.com. You can hit us up through our Facebook page, Almost Canon Podcast, or you can get a hold of us through our Instagram page at Almost Canon Pod. I'm not huge on Instagram, so I might not see your message right off. So your best bet is to just send us a straight email. Or like I said, our email address is almostcanonpod at gmail.com. We want to hear your story. Doesn't matter what it is. Like I said, ghosts, cryptids, even if you found a cave with a tunnel that leads to inner earth. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I want to hear about it. And I especially want to hear uh, if you have found a passage to the inner earth. But anyway, tonight I'm drinking Monster Energy instead of Red Bull. And we are not doing what I had wanted to do. However, we are still putting on a show tonight. So do not fret, my friends, because... A brand new episode of Almost Canon starts right now. Alright. And while I'm at it, don't forget to scroll to the bottom of your page. Write us in the uh blah, 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 blah. write us a review. Leave us a rating. We need your help to grow the show, you know. I do not say that figuratively. I say that literally. We are not a show that is um, part of some sort of podcast network. We are not endorsed by a bigger show. We are an independent podcast trying to make it in a big, big ocean full of little podcast fishies. Of other podcast fishies. So, we literally... Need your help to grow the show. Now, you can do that by liking the Facebook page, the Instagram. You can also do that by writing us a review and leaving us a rating, especially on Apple Podcasts. Don't ask me why. It seems to be the most important one. It's like 70% of, 70 or 75% of podcasts are, are casted or listened to via Apple Podcast. Now, you can still leave us a review on Spotify. And in fact, you know, it doesn't matter which one you leave them on. It doesn't matter to me. Just leave one. Like, this is, the, this is literally the only way to grow the show. Um, and we here at Almost Canon would deeply appreciate it, uh, probably more than you would know. You know, we've been holding at 26 ratings, um, pretty, you know, for at least a, a couple months now. I'm getting to the point where I'm thinking something's wrong here. You know, our, our downloads are going up. However, our, our ratings stay the same. I don't know. Maybe there's a glitch in the matrix somewhere and... I got like 50, 50 ratings waiting to 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 come through. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how I don't know how the system works. It's just I just know that it works sometimes. So please leave a rating 
leave a review. We would love to hear it. We would love to read it. We'll give you a shout-out on the next week's episode. And you can sleep better at night knowing you have done a good deed. Now that all that boring shit is out of the way, let's get to tonight's episode. We're going to jump right in it. We're going to be talking mountains, like mountain men, explorers, gold panning, mysterious creatures, chunks of gold in Alaska. Like, what, what, what more do you need? You know, I feel like, or maybe, maybe it's just me, but I feel like it's every, it's every little boy's dream to, to go explore the deep forests, you know, in a mysterious land. Seeking treasures. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But tonight's episode is along those lines. And it's a pretty fascinating story once you get, you know, get to the meat of it and you get to the to the to the good the good parts, I guess. I don't I don't know what you want to call it. It, it it's pretty interesting, n- nonetheless. So so don't worry. And it as I'm reading it over and, and thinking about it, it's actually it. It's a lot like our first episode we did, but, you know, it's not an episode you want to go back and listen to, believe me. Uh, but our first episode of Almost Canon was on uh, the Battle of Ape Canyon, you know, where these, these hard rock gold miners hollowed out this, this mountain, Mount St. Helens. They hollowed themselves out a little mine. They were mining the gold out of this mountain uh, when one of them shot a Bigfoot and then... That Bigfoot's family, I'm assuming its tribe, you know, attacked the gold miners that night. Um, and they, they call it the, the Battle of Ape Canyon, right? Now, now that happened uh, on Mount St. Helens. This, this story takes place in, in Alaska. However, they're very similar. They both in, involve, um, you know, gold miners. It's interesting, nonetheless. Now, let's let's jump right into the story. Alright, this is a story titled, The Strangest Story Ever Told. Chapter 1. The spring of 1900 found four men batching together in a shack at Ringo, Alaska. All four were broke, as is usual with prospectors. As luck would have it, I was one of those four. For reasons which will become quite obvious, I will just call the other three John, Charlie, and Fred. Charlie came into the shack one night in April, all excited, and said, Fellows, I've been on the trail of an old Indian for the last month, trying to get him to tell me where he picked up a piece of free gold quartz he has at his camp. I never said anything about it before because I wanted to get the story from him first. And today, he spilled the beans. He told me to go up to Thomas Bay and camp on Patterson River on the right side. Travel upriver for about eight miles and then turn to the high mountains. And after traveling about a mile and a half, I would find a lake shaped like a half moon. Plenty of stone like I found on the side there, he said. Now... Just a little side note. Thomas Bay is known by uh, the Tlingit people, you know, 
It's the, the Native American, the, uh, the indigenous tribe that, that's in the area as the Bay of Death. And this is because uh, about 150 years ago, a slide down one of the mountains wiped out an entire village, killing over 500 of the inhabitants. And th- this is a note that, that's in the, the actual story. Um, so I'm assuming when they say about 150 years ago, they mean 150 years prior to 1900. Um, Alright, back to the story. Well, of course, a prospector, a prospector is ready to stampede on a whisper of gold in any place. And we were no exception to the rule. We all talked the matter over, and finally it was decided that we would run our faces for an outfit and send Charlie to look the prospect over. While he was gone, John, Fred, and myself would hustle work somewhere for another grub stake and to pay off the old one. Now, I'm not entirely sure what a grub stake is, but I'm thinking it's got something to do with uh, whatever they need to survive. Or maybe it's just dinner. One or the other. Anyway, uh, the four part of May... Charlie loaded his outfit into a canoe and, having favorable weather, left Wrangell for Thomas Bay, which lies northwesterly about 50 miles. He had three months' supplies but was to come back anytime sooner if he found anything. But if he didn't show up in that time, we were to put out a search for him. John and Fred took a contract to get out wood, and I got a job at the Wrangell Sawmill. Things went along until the first part of June when, on a Sunday in the late afternoon, we all being home, in walks Charlie, without a coat or a hat, and looking as if he'd been through hell. He didn't give us any greeting whatsoever. He just heaved a piece of quartz over into the corner corner of the room and said, Get me something to eat. I'm all in, and I want to rest. The fellow looked it. And after he had eaten, he turned in without telling us a thing about his trip. Now, we picked up that piece of quartz and say, Boy, it sure was a pretty thing to look at for a prospector. It was shot through with gold specks just like a badly freckled-faced kid. Were we excited? I'd say we were. Just before dark, we walked down to the beach to bring Charlie's outfit as he had come up to the shack with only a piece of quartz in his hand, but there wasn't a thing in the canoe, except the oars. Not much sleep, not much sleep for us that night, but Charlie never stopped sawing wood. We had hard work getting Charlie up for breakfast the next morning, but when he did roll out, he just ate, borrowed a coat and hat, and left the house without saying a word, or even answering one question out of the many Put to him by us. All of us, being excited and feeling ourselves worth a fortune, did not go to work that day, but sat around the shack and passed the blamed piece of rock back and forth for each other while we talked and waited for Charlie to come back and make his report. Believe me, we were anxious to hear it. Along in the afternoon he came in and said, Fellows, The SS Dringo will be on her way south early tomorrow morning. 
Can you give me enough money for my ticket to Seattle? I'm through with Alaska and never want to see it again. I'll tell you about my trip to Thomas Bay and where I found that quartz, but my advice to you is to forget about it. It will never do you any good. It will only cause you a lot of mental and physical pain. If we were not partners, I would never open my lips about this trip or what I found. But if you promise never to mention my name in connection with what I tell you or mention the name of Thomas Bay to me again, I'll give you the straight of my experience up there. Judge for yourselves as to my saneness, because this is the most astounding thing you've ever heard. And, as far as I'm concerned, is beyond me to reason it out. Don't ask any questions to prolong my story any longer than it takes for me to tell it, as I want to leave Alaska and forget it if I can. I will try to make the one telling plain enough. Now, this is Charlie's story. Now, if he couldn't be ominous enough, (laughs) he's got to leave them, you know, hanging, hanging out for, for, what, a day and a half, waiting to hear this story, uh, and and I don't know I don't know about you, but I've I've been hanging on his every word. And now we're gonna hear Charlie's story. The first night after le- leaving Wrangell, found me in Ideal Cove. Next night I reached Muddy River in time to make camp again. The third night I hit Ruth Island in Thomas Bay. I spent the next day looking up Patterson River for a suitable place for a good camp which I found a quarter mile up the tidewater on the right-hand side, looking up the river. Broke camp on Ruth Island the next day and moved up to the place I had picked out the day before. Put up my tent, packed up my outfit, and left the canoe on the riverbank. The next day, I spent cooking beans, cutting firewood, and making things comfortable for the long stay. As it looked like rain, I wanted to get things fixed up to keep dry. It started to rain that night and just kept it up for days. I lost track of time. Each day was just like the one before. I had nothing to read. I was all alone. Couldn't do anything without getting soaked. And the roar of the river and wind through the timber just about drove me bugs. So I put in most of my time sleeping. Finally, the weather broke and I got out. I spent several days in trying to find the old Indian's Half Moon Lake, but couldn't get it spotted. I did find about two miles from camp up the river and about a mile from it, a lake shaped like the letter S. On the creek coming out of the lower end, I panned some pretty good colors, but, as I figured, not enough to get excited about. Yet, an indication of gold in the country. And talk about a dead country, that sure is. There doesn't seem to be any life in it at all. You might spend all day in the timber without seeing a squirrel. I was getting sort of tired of beans, rice, and bacon, so I made up my mind 
I would go over to the ridge about 8 miles east of the S Lake and get a few grouse. As I thought, I could hear a few hooters up there when I was at the head of this lake. I left come the next morning, which was a fine sunny day. I took only the rifle with me, and when I came to the ridge, sure enough, there was a few grouse hooting. I shot two and had gotten them when I bagged another one, which fell down the ridge about a hundred yards before it got hung up. While on my way down and pick it up, I found that piece of quartz. Up to that time, I had paid very little attention to what the country I was in looked like, as it was so heavily timbered and brushy. The formation didn't show up, and I had no tools with me to uncover it. The top of an old snag had broke off and fallen, scraping the top moss and loose dirt for a space about 8 feet wide and 18 or 20 feet long, uncovering this quartz ledge, which is where I found this piece. This ledge was worked smooth by a glacier at one time. I couldn't find anything to break off a piece with, so I used the butt of my gun to get that piece. In so doing, I broke the stock of my gun, thus ruining it, for any further use. This didn't worry me any, as I knew there was not game in the country larger than a grouse and damned few of them. My first thought was of the richness of the courts and you fellows and getting back to town to round you all up so we could get busy on it. After looking over and enjoying the feeling of knowing I had made a rich find, I covered up the ledge again with moss, limbs, and rotten chunk. Finishing that job, I thought I would climb the ridge directly over the ledge and get my landmarks so I could come back to it again or tell you where it was if anything should happen to me. This I did, climbing straight up over the ledge on the ridge till I reached the top, which was about 600 feet above where I found that ledge. I looked down below me and picked out a big tree with a bushy top, taller than the rest and about 50 feet to the right of the ledge. Looking over the top of this tree from where I stood, I could see out on Frederick Sound, Cape of the Straight Light, the point of Vanderput Spit, and turning a little to the left, I could see Sequoia Island from the mouth of the Wrangell Narrows. Satisfied with that, I turned half round to get a back sight on the mountain peaks and lying below me on the other side of the ridge from that ledge was the half-moon lake the Indian had told me about. Right there, fellows. Right there, I got the scare of my life. I hope to God I would never see or go through the likes of it again. Swarming up the ridge towards me from the lake were the most hideous creatures. I couldn't call them anything but devils. As they were neither men nor monkeys yet looked like both. They were entirely sexless, their bodies covered with long, coarse hair, except where the scabs and running sores had replaced it. Each one seemed to be reaching out for me and striving to be the first to get to me. The air was full of their cries, and the stench from their sores and bodies made me faint. I forgot my broken gun and tried to use it on the first one, and then I threw it at him and turned and ran. God, how I did run. I could feel their hot breath on my back, 
their long, claw-like fingers scraping my back. The smell from their steaming, stinking bodies was making me sick, while the noises they made, yelling, screaming, and breathing, drove me mad. Reason left me. How I reached the canoe, or how I hung on to that piece of quartz is a mystery to me. When I came to, it was night, and I was lying in the bottom of my canoe, drifting between Thomas Bay and Sequoia Island, cold, hungry, and crazy for a drink of water. But only to satisfy the latter urge, I started for Wrangell. And here I am. You no doubt think I'm either crazy or lying. All I can say is, there is the quartz. Never let me hear the name of Thomas Bay again, and for God's sake, help me get away tomorrow on that boat. And so passed out Charlie from our lives. We put his story down as a fantasy caused by loneliness and morbid thought. And that, my friends, is the strangest story ever told. At least that's what the writer titled it. I mean, I wouldn't call it the strangest story ever told. However, uh, maybe back in 1900... When it happened, it was probably one of the most strangest stories that had ever been uh, at least written to paper. Now, what did good old Charlie see out there in Thomas Bay? Um, I guess there's probably, you know, several several good options. What do we got? We got Sasquatch. We got feral humans, you know, like maybe like a feral Native American tribe. Um now, the Tlingit people of Alaska, southern Alaska, um, they speak of a creature somewhat like a Sasquatch that is semi-aquatic. You know, it, it does very well in the water. It lives near the water. Um, it doesn't live in the water, however, but, you know, it, 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 it likes the water, you know. Um, it, it is much like a Sasquatch. And it also has the ability, you know, this strange shape-shifting uh, ability that we're often talking about when we talk about, you know, Native American legends and myths and creatures. Now, this, this creature, this, this being, whatever you want to uh, refer to it as, is called the Kushtaka. Or the Kustaka. Um, now, those of you who who watch a lot of TV and watched the newest season of um, Expedition Bigfoot, which I will say is a pretty good show. I mean, I I I've seen it. I've seen every every season, and I watched this newest season. And they had talked about the Kustaka several times. You know, every time they talked to one of the the indigenous peoples of the area, they were always talking about this Kustaka or this Kustaka. Now, officially, it is known as the Otter Man. We would know it as the Otter Man, the Kustaka, the Otter Man. Same thing. It is much like a Sasquatch, um, except instead of being described as like, you know, a monkey or an ape, you know, Bigfoot is often associated with looking like 
a, a great ape or, or, you know, like a gorilla, the, the kushtaka is often um, associated with the otter, you know, like the sea otter. And apparently it has something to do with the way its, its face is, is, is constructed. You know, it's got that, that slight muzzle. It's kind of got like um, the big burly nose, the sharp teeth. Not not like a sharp canine, like like teeth like a dog man or a dog. I'm talking like sharp pointed teeth like an otter. And while I I would definitely say the Kushtaka looks an awful lot like a Sasquatch, it seems to be, you know, one of the major differences between the Kushtaka and the Sasquatch is this Kushtaka's ability to shapeshift. Um, whatever you read, whatever you hear about the Kushtaka... You always hear that it has this ability to shapeshift, and that's what makes it so dangerous to the Tlingit people. You know, they're always telling their children to stay away from the water because this Kushtaka can take the form of whatever it wants and it will drag you in and it will drown you, and you know what? No one will ever see you again. And I've also heard stories of the Kushtaka grabbing you from, you know, the riverside or the, the, uh, you know, the shoreline taking you underwater where it will then um, capture you in some way. And somehow they have the ability. Now, I have heard this I've, I've several times. They have the ability to turn you into a Kustaka. Now, how exactly they do this, you know, I don't know. I'm not even sure if anybody knows. But apparently what they do is they, they um, you know, save you and put that in quotations from drowning like like if you're you're a sailor or you're you know you're out fishing and you fall off the boat and you're you're drowning and you're freezing in the water the acoustica will come uh and it will save you by you know capturing you and transforming you into another uh acoustica or kustaka you know um, and I guess the only way to be saved by this is, is by, you know, a shaman, you know, some sort of witch doctor. Um, and another thing they do is if you have drowned, you know, and you're lost at sea, the Kushtaka will take your body and it will steal your soul. Um, and then it will turn you into, you know, it'll turn your soul into a physical Kushtaka. And your soul is pretty much trapped forever, you know. Um, and right here, I, I looked it up. So the, the Kushtaka means uh, land otter man. All right, right. Here, here's, here's the story I, I heard, I don't know, years and years ago, like 2016 or something like that. Years and years ago. And I've always re remembered it. It was just so strange and weird, you know. All right. Several persons once went out from Sitka together, when their canoe upset and all were drowned except a man of the Kilinsadi, and it, so this is a, uh, an indigenous people's uh, legend or story from, from Alaska, the Tlingit. Um, a canoe came to this man, and he thought that it contained his friends, but they were really land otters. They started southward with him and kept going farther and farther until they had passed until they had passed clear round the Queen Charlotte Islands. At every place where they stopped, they took in a female land otter. All this time, they kept a mat 
made out of the broad part of a piece of kelp over the man they had captured until at length they arrived at a place they called Rainy Village. At this place, the man met an aunt who had been drowned years before and had become the wife of two land otters. She was dressed in a groundhog robe. They then said to him, Your aunt's husbands will save you. You must come to see me this evening. When he came, his aunt said, I can't leave these people, for I have learned to think a great deal of them. Afterward, his aunt's husbands started back with him. They did not camp until midnight. The canoe was a skate, and as soon as they came ashore, they would turn it over on top of him, so that no matter how hard he tried to get out, he could not. In making the passage across to Cape Omni, they worked very hard, and shortly after they landed, they heard the raven. They could go only a short distance for food. When they first started back, the woman had said to her husband's, don't leave him where he can be captured again. Take him to a good place. So they left him close to Sitka. Then he walked around in the neighborhood of the town and made the people suffer so much every night that they could not sleep and determined to capture him. They fixed the rope in such a way as to ensnare him, but at first they were unsuccessful. Finally, however, they placed dog bones in the rope so that they would stick to his hands dog bones being the greatest enemies of the land otters. Late that night, the land otter man tore his hands so with these bones that he sat down and began to scream. And when he was doing this, they got the rope around him and captured him. When they got him home, he was at first very wild, but they restored his reason by cutting his head with dog bones. He was probably not so far gone as most victims, then they learned what had happened to him. After this time, however, he would always eat his meat and fish raw. Once when he was among the halibut fishers, they wanted very much to have him eat some cooked halibut. He was a, he was a good halibut fisher, probably having learned the art from the land otters, though he did not say so. For a long time, the man refused to take any, but at last consented and the food killed him. So this story was recorded in 1909. Um, interesting story. So this dude, he's fishing, he's in a canoe, and he drowns. Or the, the canoe rolls over, uh, everybody drowns, and he is saved by these land otters. He's saved by these mysterious people. Turns out to be these, these kushtakas, right? They take him back. You know, the story doesn't say how long he was, he was captured for, but... Um, it seems like, you know, the story, the recorded story makes it seem like it wasn't very long at all. You know, maybe a day or whatever. But during that time, he had gone um, wild. You know, he had turned uh, feral, it seemed. You know, he was almost turning into an otter. And what's interesting is, is he, had, he meets his, his own aunt who had died, you know, who had drowned years prior and she you know she's living with these these kushtaka as a kushtaka um so it's just it's just a weird story right like how i wonder how that works how does that work um i would imagine because they're they're able to shape shift it's got something to do with you know some sort of 
ancient earth magic that we just don't understand as as of right now. But it is, it is, nonetheless, it is a very interesting story. Um, so yeah, this, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier, this whole shape-shifting ability, you know. And, th- and this is another thing, I don't, I don't know if I talked about this, but this is another thing that seems to pop up an awful lot within Native Amer- American uh, legends and myths, is this shape-shifting ability, you know. In the Southwest with the Navajo, you have the Skinwalker, you know. You often hear a Skinwalker all over the place, you know. It is associated with, um, you know, the Navajo people. Now, I'm sure uh, with the way, you know, people can communicate over the Internet and telephones and cell phones and, you know, you can jump on a plane and be from Arizona to Alaska in a day, you know, this magic of the, of the, um, of the skinwalker can probably be easily transferred, uh, and easily learned by people from all over the world. So, you know, it's no wonder you hear about all these, these skinwalker stories from all over the world, I guess, or from at least all over the North America. I mean, but from what I know of Native Native American lore, you know, the, the skinwalker is really something that, that's from the Southwest. Now, other Native American tribes, they do have uh, skinwalker tales, and this is another one, the Tlingit people of, um, you know, Southwest West Alaska talk about the Kushtaka, you know, and it's not necessarily like a skinwalker. They're not putting on the skin of an otter. They're more of a land otter people who have the ability, it's almost like an, an innate ability, they're just born with it, to, to um, shapeshift into whatever they want. And, you know, some of the legends says that they're only able to shapeshift into species of otters. Some legends say that they're able to shapeshift into whatever they want. I've heard stories that they'll, they'll, they'll come ashore to steal, you know, food from from hunters and fishers, and when they're, they're caught, they'll, they'll transform themselves into to some dead fish or something, you know. Um, and then when the, the hunter or the fisher, fisherman goes away, you know, goes back inside their hut, their house, they transform back into the, these, these, these land otter men, uh, and they'll, they'll take the food. But, you know, they just, it's just strange ability, and, and I, I, I'm not exactly sure where it comes from, you know. It, I feel the the Kushtaka is more related to the Wendigo than the Skinwalker. You know, the Skinwalker is a person who's who's performing magic to shapeshift. A, a, a Wendigo is more like um, some sort of, of demonic being that is already in existence that can transform... Um, you know, one person, one regular person into another Wendigo. So it's almost like, and we're talking opposite sides of North America. You know, the Tlingit, people of Southwest Alaska, they're all the way on the coast, of you know, the West Coast, and the Algonquin people of, you know, Central and, and Eastern North America, you know, they're all the way... On the East Coast, you know, you hear about the more being on the East Coast and, and in Central, but but when 
And when I think of Central, I'm I'm thinking like, um, you know, Michigan, like Michigan and Manitoba and Ontario, you know, in in Canada. And those those are those are Central Canada, you know. But but they're also considered to be on the, you know, they're in within this Algonquin speaking group of you know the East Coast, the Northeast. But um. It's very similar. It, it is strange, actually. I've never really thought of it until just now. You know, you got the land otters. You have this um, creature of of the deep winter. You know, the the Wendigo isn't. It's it's not a, a an antlered being as we'd see on like TV or, or comic books or what we would see now. You know. The Wendigo was just kind of like a zomb a zombified person, a, a zombie person who eats human flesh. You know that that's emaciated and starving, and you know they have an, their heart is made of ice. And even some Native American tribes, like I believe the the um, the Abenaki, they talk about um, the Wendigo as being a, a cannibalistic ice giant. You know you often see here. People talk about the Wendigo as being a giant, um, and it's stra- it's a strange thing to think about. You know, every time they they eat a person, they grow and they can be you know these huge towering uh, beasts and creatures creatures of you know fifty sixty foot tall. If if you listen to our coverage on the um, the Pet Cemetery re- movie review, I, I talked about a deleted scene where um, Lewis. He's bringing Gage's body to the pet cemetery, and they come across the Wendigo out in the forest there behind the deadfall, and it's just this towering monster. It's 60 feet tall, and it's stomping its way through the forest. Well, that, those are, you know, that is, is from, um, you know, Algonquin-speaking group folklore. That's from the folklore of that that area, it's an odd thing to think about, and you're not you, you know we don't hear we obviously don't hear Tlingit talking about sixty foot tall kustakas, but nonetheless, um, very similar creature. They they both steal the souls of, or I guess I guess nec- you don't necessarily hear about the the Wendigo stealing souls, but they are able to to transform. Another person into a Wendigo, much like the Kustika is able to transform a person into another Kustika. So it's an interesting creature how it's able to do this sort of stuff. Uh, and I do have, I, I, I quickly did some investigating here. All right. So I got one more encounter with what could be the Kustika. Um, and I pulled this off of Reddit, and it's called The Copy Demon... Dot, dot, dot... The Kustika. Help! My mother wailed. I can't swim! My spine tingled. I glanced at my father and whispered, It's here. It's here. I tightened my grip on the cold metal of my hunting rifle to still my shaking hands. My father tilted his chin back and bellowed, We're coming, Mildred! 
When the wind finished, swallowing the last echoes of a shout, my father turned to me and whispered, Careful. Careful now. We're close. Snow crunched beneath our boots. We had spent the better part of three hours out on the ice, but the hunt was nearly over. Don't believe one word, my father whispered, for the hundredth time. The Kustika will deceive you. It will lie. It will say anything it has to, especially when it sees our guns. Remember the Smiths. My skin crawled beneath my caribou parka. Angel and Dusk Smith, brother and sister, had been officially listed as missing by the Anchorage Police Department two weeks ago. Unofficially, as the Alaskans of the old families knew, Angel and Dusk Smith were the latest victims of the copy demon, the Kushtaka. For better or for worse, the grieving Smith parents, petroleum engineers from Dallas, believed the old legend. Immediately after the funeral for their children, the pair journeyed from Anchorage to my village to fork over a healthy pile of cash. Six figures, my father had grunted when I pressed him for the number. My father, the only man who had ever faced down the Kushtaka and lived, accepted their offer. A thin shriek filled the crisp air. Henry! Shannon! Hurry! I'm drowning! My heart leapt in my chest. Every warning from my father evaporated. Forgetting everything else, I shouted, Mom! I got three hurried steps across the ice before a hand snatched the hood of my coat and yanked me back. My father spun me roughly to face him and inspected me with his one good eye. If I wasn't here, you'd be as dead as doornails, he whispered. I shook my head clear. My cheeks burned despite the cold. He was right. Sorry, sir. It'd say anything, he repeated. You have to keep your guard up. Stay behind me. If it calls again, focus on my voice. It'll help keep your head straight. Yes, sir. Is that you, Shannon? Water splashed in rhythmic flurries against the ice, treading water. Oh, thank the Lord. Help me, Shannon. Hurry. Help me. I'm drowning. I shivered. Even now, with my father breathing on my face, that I must not listen, must not believe, I wanted to. I wanted to believe what my ears and brain told me. I wanted to run ahead to where the water lapped at the sky to save my mother. Help, Dad! And now, the voice amidst the frantic splashing belonged to my sister, Rachel. Only it wasn't really Rachel in the water, just as much as it wasn't really my mom. They were at home. I had bid the two of them goodbye not three hours ago. If the Kushtaka knew that, it didn't care. I'm all right, I mumbled. A lie, to be sure, but my dad often said a good helping of fear kept a man sharp. And if he spoke the truth, it was a razor's edge. I glanced over my shoulder. Anchorage had shrunk alarmingly fast. We're far out now. Keep your focus forward, he said. You wouldn't look away if we was on the trail of a polar bear. And the Kushtaka is a lot meaner than any mama bear. It'll eat you up twice as quick. Be careful and be ready. How much farther? 
Nor far, he said. It's close. It always sounds close. It sounded close since we got on the ice. Hush, trust me. It's not throwing its voice anymore. Get ready. The ice beneath my boots crunched and cracked. Shannon, my mother shouted. Dad, Rachel echoed. Water splashed in pandemonium from behind a shelf of ice 20 yards away. There, my father whispered, raising a gloved hand to point out the spot. He raised his rifle, then glanced over his shoulder to make sure I followed suit. My barrel shook more than his, but I aimed it in roughly the same direction. He whispered something so low that this time I couldn't make out a single word. The message sounded brief, could not have, cont could not have contained more than a handful of words, but they were captured by the wind and carried to the creature hidden beneath the ice. Henry, it's really me, the thing which was not my mother called. It's us. We came out on the ice after you to help you, but we slipped and fell into the ocean. Hurry. We slipped, Rachel agreed. Spitting the words through a mouthful of salt water. No, not Rachel. Rachel was at home. Rachel is at home. Mom is at home. Rachel is at home. Mom is at home. I focused on my father. I centered on the sound of his breathing. On the way he moved across the, th the slick ice without letting his rifle stray so much as an inch. By keeping my father in my thoughts... I was better able to remember him standing with me at the front door, with my mother and sister waving us goodbye and good luck. Mom, with reluctant tears, and Rachel, not knowing this was no ordinary hunt, because our parents had decided it was better that she didn't. He did not yell out my mother or sister's names. I think if he did, I might have been able to get to him in time. But as was his way, in all things, my father held his tongue. He could not speak his heart, even as it betrayed him. The sound which brought me to reality was the clatter of his own hunting rifle when he tossed it onto the ice. His only means of defending himself slid across the white sheet over a lip where thick ice gave way to dark and violent waves and dropped into the water. In the blink of an eye, it vanished. Perhaps the Kushtika put the idea in my father's head that he could pull my mother and Rachel from the freezing water if he gave them each one arm. He had been so worried about me, the Kushtika was able to sneak past his mental barricade. Dad! He didn't hear me, or if he did, he gave no sign of it. I gave chase, knowing I would never catch him before he reached the water. That was when I got my first look at the beast, which had taken the smiths. The Kushtika's black eyes came into view first. Thick, wet clots of brown fur surrounded a leather-skinned face. It made me think of the proto-humans from old movies. A creature, stuck, a creature stuck in time between a caveman and a modern man, but with the snout and sharp needle teeth of an otter. I raised my quivering rifle. The Kushtika's eyes flickered to me, deemed me non-threatening, and returned to my father. It opened its pink mouth to review rows of teeth that went all the way back 
all the way to the back of its throat. And when the Kushtika spoke next, it sounded like my mother. Shannon! The Kushtika tread water just above the first surface, holding the edge of the ice floe from beneath to hold it in place in such a way that I could not see its claws. Hurry, take my hand, my mother called. And the Kushtika pulled one dripping claw from the freezing water and offered it to my dad. Dad! Alaska, especially my home village, is hunting country. Every last man, woman, and child hunts, fishes, and wears too much camouflage. I learned to skin a goat and to start a cooking fire before my seventh birthday. And I was hunting with a rifle before my tenth. Yet, as I raised my rifle to save my father's life, I had never felt less confident. He can't see it, I realized. The monster is right there, and he only sees my mom or Rachel. Or maybe both. My teeth chattered. The business end of the rifle jittered in the wind like a, like a frightened mosquito. I swallowed, but the wet stone in my throat would not go down. The Kushtika smiled, and a long black tongue flickered in the air. Give me your hand, it called in Rachel's voice. The two were less than an inch apart when I squeezed the trigger. I held my breath and managed to steady the barrel over the Kushtika's lying throat. I hollered and squeezed the trigger just as the beast's claw pierced through my father's coat. I saw his eyes widen in terror and pain. The rifle clicked and did not fire. The sound of my gun appeared to wake my father from his hypnotism. He tugged his hand back in revulsion, crying out. His coat tore beneath yellow claws. Blood sprayed across the ice, but he managed to pull himself free to shuffle away from the demon. The Kushtika barked, and as my father slipped on the slick ice, the creature pulled itself from the water in one smooth, practiced heave. It got onto four legs, and I saw that it had a six-fingered human hand on the end of each limb, with a sharp claw in the place of each fingernail. My father scrambled back as fast as he could with one hand while the other glove worked on unhooking the ice pick from his belt. Henry, run, he shouted. The Kustika crossed the distance to my father in a single leap and buried its teeth into his shoulder. Then the creature began to pull my father back towards the water from which it had come. He screamed and swung the ice pick between the Kustika's neck and shoulder and its black blood sprayed across the ice like oil. He pulled the weapon free, wound it back, and drove the blade into the breast twice, three, four more times. Despite the severe damage my father inflicted, the beast showed no sign of stopping or letting him free, even when the pick lodged into the Kushtika's forehead. Dad! My father jerked the axe out of the monster and swung down again, but it had managed to pull him all the way to the lapping black ocean tongues. I sprinted towards them, not sure how or whether I could help him, but knowing I had to try. I wanted to club it with my useless rifle, but the Kushtika was too quick. The monster threw my father into the Pacific with one flick of its neck. The waves pawed at him greedily, and as the ocean frothed and roared, the Kushtika dragged him beneath the waves. No! Dad! 
When I arrived at the water's edge, it churned with the Kushtika's blood. Dead! He was gone. The Kushtika was injured, though, perhaps lethally. My father had buried the pick into the breast at least five times and was ready for another blow when it drove him under the water. Maybe. I squinted hard, trying to catch movement behind the waves. Once or twice I thought I saw a gloved finger reaching for the surface, but there was nothing. Soon, the rippling water settled back to a rhythmic wave. I let go and howled my anguish to the ocean. A tremendous splash in the distance signaled some Alaskan beast breaking through the surface. The creature took in an enormous inhale and slapped its bulk against the ice somewhere I could not see. I ran towards the noise, ready to beat the Kushtika to death with my rifle or give shooting it another try. But I stopped abruptly when the sound of a human coughing reached my ears. Then a familiar voice. Henry! Impossible. But there was no mistaking it. Somehow, impossibly. Henry, can you hear me? Are you up there? Dad? Henry, help me for Christ's sakes. The water is freezing. I ran towards him. It was a miracle that he hadn't been taken by hypothermia already. But if I managed to pull him out now, we might be able to make it back to Anchorage in time before he froze to death. I had to get him out before the Kushtika could resurface. He probably hadn't killed it, but I stopped. Oh, God. Henry, is everything all right? No, I said, unmoving. A pause while my father, or not my father, considered my hesitation. God damn it, he might have coughed, but the wind snatched his words and warped them. That sound could also have been a growling animal. When my father's voice rose above the ice and wind again, I could tell he, or it, was trying hard to keep his voice steady. Go back home, son. Go home for your mother. I'm done for. Serves me right for getting fooled. Go on now. Go home. No! I won't leave you out here. I just need to figure out how to... how to be sure. Go home, he said. I love you. It's all right. I can't leave you to die. You have to. A splash in the water just beyond sight. I could, it could have been my father reasserting his grip on the ice ledge or the Kushtika baiting me forward just as it had baited him forward minutes ago. I could picture the beast there so easily, waiting just out of reach, black eyes shining, above its terrible, glittering smile. Go home! My father was not quite whispering, but his voice had lost most of its volume and all of its edge. Tell me something only you would know, I called. You know there's nothing I could say. And he was right. The Kushtika could throw its voice to mimic loved ones, and it could know your heart and mind. Anything my father might want to tell me, the Kushtika could copy. If I knew, then it knew. What then, I shouted. What can I do? You can go home. I took another step closer. My shivering had become quite violent by then. I could feel the ice crystallizing against my skin, sucking my life away. 
If only Mom was here, I tried. Or Rachel. They would know what to do. If it was the Kushtika down there, it didn't fall for my trick. Go, Henry, my father said after a time. I am done for. Can you try to get your hand above the ice, I asked. Anything that will help me. I wouldn't do you any good, he said. And if I was the Kushtika, I could make you see the hand, even if it was truly a claw. Besides, the hole is quite deep. The tips of my fingers could not reach over it. Could not reach over the top of the... He screamed, loud and sharp. Frantic splashing. Frantic splashing, then more shouting. Dad? Silence. Dad? There's something in the water, he answered through a clenched jaw. A fish, I think. I think it took my toes, most of my foot. More splashing. He screamed louder than ever. Dad! I took another reluctant step forward. It tortured me to hear him like that, but the Kushtika would know just the right strings to pluck to get me moving. The water churned as if it was boiling. Go home, Henry, he shouted over the din. I stepped closer to the edge. I could see that my father had told the truth in at least one regard. The crater was deep. The ice dropped straight down a few feet ahead into a hole, just deep enough that I could not see if a man or beast waited below. If I see the fish, I'll believe, I said. I'll come close to the edge, close enough to see the water and how deep the hole is. If I see the fish, I'll know you're telling the truth, and I'll save you. We can still make it. I became aware at some point in the last couple minutes. I stopped shivering. Hypothermia lurked in my immediate future. Dad, I'm coming to the lip. No, he croaked. But his denial came too late. I had made up my mind. I took a quick peek over the ledge, spotted my father, then retreated. If there was no illusion or hypnosis at play, my father lay dying six feet below. At the bottom of his frozen tunnel, the ice formed a small crescent shelf which my father had hoisted himself onto. His pale skin nearly camouflaged with the ice, and live or die, he was going to, to lose what remained of his legs to frostbite. The fish had taken a lot of him. The coarse wave caps were pink with his blood. Dad, don't look. I already saw. I already saw. A pause. You know it's me? He asked. For the first time since he had splashed out of the black water, I heard a thin layer of hope in that voice. I spent a long time thinking about how to answer. Certainly too long given the circumstances, but eventually I gave him the truth. I don't know, I said. But I'm going to help you. I think it's you, and that's enough. Henry, I'm going to throw a rope down. Do you think you can hook yourself on? Both of our coats had metal links for a situation just like this one, if climbing or being pulled were, were required. If my father could manage to clasp his various hooks and clamps onto my rope, I could pull him up safely. I could pull him up to safety, or at least... I could try. 
The feeling had run out of my fingers, and even without the extra weight of the ocean in his clothes, my father was a heavy man. But I was determined. Dad, can you manage? Yes, yes, came the weak reply. I threw one end of the rope over the edge, then listened carefully for jingling metal, with one hand tight around the rope and the other hand on my rifle. The Kushtaka could mimic human voices, but none of the old stories suggested the creature could imitate the jingle jangle of cold metal. I yelled, Click the clasp together as loud as you can. A pause. They're gone. Coat's gone. My heart dropped. The glitter clatter of ice shards being blown across the ice sounded like the Arctic was applauding the monster's sly trick. If this was a trick at all. How can that be? Why didn't you say something before? The Kushtaka, the Kushtaka must have torn it off, he said. I didn't even realize. It cut me up pretty good. Why did you say that before? I asked. Where did it cut you? I didn't see any blood. The longest pause yet. Dad? No reply. Dad? A thin splash from the bottom of the pit. I dropped the rope and pulled my rifle tight to my shoulder. My father had always taught me to aim with both eyes open, but I could not shake the habit of closing one as I peered down the sight. I'm going to lose him, I thought. Maybe I already lost him, and when I try to run away, that thing's going to have my guts for dinner. From where I stood on the ice, too far from Anchorage to have a dream that someone would hear me shouting, the day had gone from light gray to approaching black. We had less than an hour until nightfall. I stared down the trembling barrel of my rifle. Dad, if you're there, you better say something. My heartbeat crashed in my ears so loud that I was not sure I would hear him if he did eventually reply. I began to march once more towards the edge of ice. The snow crackled beneath my boots like a firework about to explode. Dad, don't move. I'm coming. There was no answer. Don't move, I heard myself say. I peered slowly over the edge, sliding my boots carefully over the ice so as not to lose my footing and tumble into the black waves. The wind roared. The tang smell of salt water drifted up from the place my father might eventually close his eyes forever. There were two bleeding bodies on the ice shelf now. Both of them were my father. One of them turned its head towards me. Its eyes were screwed shut in tremendous pain. Go home, it croaked. Go home, the other echoed. I'm done for. Save yourself. For a moment, I did not speak. I could only stare at the two of them. One, my father, and the other, an imposter. But I could not begin to guess who was who. They were closer in appearance than twins, exact replicas of each other, even details I had never registered. The way his hair parted, the wrinkles on his hand, the way his upper lip curled at his own pain, all of it was a match. Dad? Even the puddles of frozen burgundy coloring beside them were the exact same. Both pairs of legs floated along the tumbling surface of the dark water, and both of them had lost their boot to the 
as yet unseen man-eating fish. Kill it, I shouted. Kill it quick. Can't move, one moaned. I'll slide into the water, said the other in equal pain. If I move, I'm dead. Leave me, quick. My mind raced. My father, my real father, was in no condition to kill the Kushika, but appeared that the monster was in no shape to kill my father either. He had succeeded in injuring it during their first battle then, or, as I realized, perhaps the demon was only feigning injury until I either came down to rescue one of them or cried off, Go home, one of my father's rasped. The sun was halfway behind the horizon now. I was no longer risking mild frostbite or even a couple of fingers and toes. Fleeing across the black Alaskan night with my father slung over my shoulder or without him, I wouldn't see the opening in the ice that swallowed me. A sharp sob escaped my throat. I hadn't felt the tears building in the corners of my eyes, but now they flowed unchecked, freezing into tiny flecks of cold glass on the way from my chin to where they dripped onto the ice. Where is the fish, I asked. No idea, said one father. The Kushtika pulled it under the waves, said the other. Then it came up here and laid down to trick you. A harsh cough, and then, I don't look so good, do I? You have to kill me, the first father said. A spray of blood shot from his mouth onto the ice. Kill both of us. I'm dead anyway. Put a bullet in both our skulls and take the Kushtika's head back to the smiths for the reward. Don't shoot, said the other. The Kushtika's heard your gun fail the first time. If you fail again, it'll come after you. Right now, it thinks you had a bad bullet. Hell, that's what I think too. But don't give it the chance to find out you have a bad gun. I said, isn't it dying? No. The same body croaked. It didn't hurt it all that bad to begin with. And I sure as hell didn't get any more blows under the water. Don't shoot. I almost killed you, you son of a bitch. The one that wanted me to shoot snarled. Now my son is going to finish the job. Shoot it, Henry. I'm not sure. I need to think about it. There's no time. Shoot. Don't shoot. Run. I don't know what to do, I howled. Run, said one. The thing's head ain't worth risking your life over. It's beating me. Don't let it have you too. Kill the fucking thing, the other roared. Then broke into coughing fit. Red blood, not black, sprayed across the ice. The night wind purred, begging me to stay on the ice just a little longer, just until the sun dripped behind the horizon. Then I would be stranded. I realized that I had to squint through the last of the remaining daylight to see them. The time to make a decision had come. I'm going to. I stopped. I'm sorry, Henry, said one of my fathers. I could barely make out which was speaking through the dark. You shouldn't be in this situation, but you are, and for my part, I'm sorry. The only thing I care about now is your safety. Don't shoot. Run. 
Kill that goddamn imposter! My other father spurted. My other father sputtered. Kill it! You have to! Or those Smith kids will have died for nothing. And I'll have died for nothing. And the monster will take other victims. This is no task for a father to ask for a son. But put a bullet in both our heads. I'm going to shoot, I whispered. Do it! No, save yourself. The ocean lapped hungrily at their legs. I wondered if my father, the real one, was even aware of the creeping tide. I'm not going back empty-handed, I said. It's not the safest choice, and it's not the one I would make if, in make if my only concern was getting out alive. I shook the tears out of my eyes and continued, ignoring the protest of one father and sputtering encouragement of the other. I'm going to kill it. I'll kill it. Then I'll cut its head off and take it back to town. I'll take care of the family when you're gone. But your gun, what if it misfires again? One asked. What if it always misfires? It'll come for you. It's trying to save itself, said the other. Shoot it. Don't worry about me. Shoot me first if you must. But kill it. Kill the Kushtaka. Truth is, I'm a lot more afraid of putting a bullet in the real one of you than I am if that gun won't fire. I lowered the barrel on one of my father's. The rifle wanted to quiver with, with my anxiety, but I held tight. One of them looked, at, looked up at me with vague curiosity. The other had turned away. Might have even fallen asleep. He looked so peaceful. And after finally conceding that I had no idea which was which, I fixed my weapon upon the sleeper first. Get ready, said the awake one. If the weapon misfires, you'd better run. I took a deep breath and squeezed the trigger. The rifle did not misfire. There was no scream. The muzzle flash lit up the pocket of darkness like lightning had fallen upon my father instead of a bullet. The rifle kicked back so hard I nearly lost it, but I managed to keep the weapon between my mitts. The sleeping father jumped when the bullet hit him. I heard a bone snap, one of his vertebrae. The black water churned greedily as the body, shaken loose, slid into the ocean's maw. Then darkness rushed back into the hole. The lights of Anchorage's streetlights glowed white and yellow at the water's edge, but the city did not burn bright enough to reveal the lone figure lurking at the bottom of the pit. Dad? Waves crashing against the ice. My father did not answer, but the Kushtika did not growl or pull me to my death either. I took a step away from the edge. Dad? A faint whisper floated up from the dark. You chose right, Henry. You'll have to be quick about it, though. The body is floating on the surface. Get down here and take its head. I aimed the rifle into the darkness, weeping quietly. Can you pu pull it to the edge, I asked. I don't know. I'll try, but... His words were cut out of the air by the roar of my rifle. I managed to make it back to Anchorage 
by pure luck. The next morning, I saw that the ice was broken in a thousand places, but I had been spared from slipping into the dark water by nothing short of a miracle. It took an hour, but eventually I reached the pit where I had killed my father. The pit was empty when I arrived, and I could not sleep for wondering what that might mean. All right. The Copy Demon. Now that, that's a hell of a story. Um, I don't even know where to begin. Um, that's definitely not a situation you want to be in. Uh, there were, if, I mean, if he could, if he could see, you know, into that pit, like, I don't know why they went hunting, um, near dark, but they didn't bring a flashlight, obviously, um, but, I mean, he probably could have figured it out if he had a flashlight, obviously, I'm pretty sure the dad, you know, being a father myself, I would want, you know, my son, if he was in that situation, to have to kill both of us, so that he could get away safely, you know what I mean, um, and then, so, whichever one, whichever dad, whichever, you know, whichever father was, was telling the son to shoot both of them was probably, you know, the real father. I, I, you know, and if you wanted, there, there's some clues throughout there. You could figure out which father is which, but I mean, it, you know, if that is a true story, then it clearly, um, that's definitely not a situation anybody would want to be in. That's the Kushtika for you. That's 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 the danger of the Kushtika. I mean, I think in most um, most stories told by the Kushtika, like like we talked about earlier, they 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 mimic like like you know a crying baby or a screaming, you know, a woman screaming for help to get someone to go down to the to you know the river the river's edge or the um, the shoreline, and then they'll drag them to the, you know, to their death. You know, I do, I also do like this idea of uh, a, a Kushtika hunter. I mean, we, we, we've had stories of, I know a lot of people don't like the uh, dogman encounter radio or, or whatever it's called, you know, but I remember years and years ago, I heard a, an episode, it was like episode 76 or something. I, I'm pretty sure that's what episode it was. It was, it was such a great episode that, that I, I've, I've memorized it, and it was about um, a dude who who went with his cousins or his uncles on a dogman hunt, and these uncles, his uncles, I'm pretty sure they were his uncles. They were hired by you know like people throughout the county or the or the the state. They were specifically known to hunt dogmen, and when there was a problem on you know someone's farm, they would contact these 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 uncles, right? So this guy tags along with his uncles one night, and they go out to this farm, you know, uh, and they set up everything, and they they hunt dogmen. So, you know, there's and, and I'm sure there's other stories of dogmen hunters out there, like people who are actually hired, you know, to get the job done, not just some random ass person who's going out there to hunt a dogman. I'm like this this is their profession. So we I've heard stories of dogman hunters. I've heard stories of um, Wendigo hunters. We, we talked about them real quick on our um, Wendigo episode. Jack Fiddler was his name. 
He was a, oh, a self-proclaimed Wendigo hunter. Uh, he was eventually uh, put to death, I think. Or he was arrested and he escaped. And he, I think he died of like pneumonia or something. But, um, but yeah, I mean, why wouldn't there be a Wendigo hunter? You know, there's... Clearly... You know, there's probably Bigfoot hunters out there too. I, you know, I feel I don't feel like I've heard a whole lot of stories other than like the military getting involved in going after like, you know, to put some rowdy Bigfoots down or or something. You know, like a fishing game going out there on a clandestine mission to put down some rowdy Bigfoot. But it makes sense. I mean, I'm sure, you know, there are people who specialize in kushtaka hunting. I mean, it, it it just makes sense to me. They they are dangerous, and the shape shifting is is another. Like we talked, you know, I we talked about it earlier. So I don't really need to bring it up again. But we talked about it earlier. This shape shifting, it it it's just it's scary. You know, it's it's a scary thing. You 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 have the the skinwalkers, um, you have the Kushtaka, you have the Wendigo. I wouldn't necessarily call a Wendigo a shapeshifter, but, you know, they're all... I, I heard in a podcast recently, um, they were talking about something, and, and you know, I always, I always make this point that while shapeshifting, you know, shapeshifting creatures and beings are within native lore, almost every single indigenous tribe in, in North America has some sort of story about a shapeshifter or some you know some sort of shapeshifting being the skinwalker magic that specific magic that you have to be taught to skinwalk i mean i guess technically given you know email cell phones text messaging and the fact that you could you know get on an airplane in New Mexico or Arizona and fly to Arizona, you know, the skinwalking magic can technically be taught anywhere. But but I wouldn't call the Kushtaka a skinwalker. I mean, it, it's clearly not a skinwalker. It's almost like its own... It's almost like it's its own tribe of being. You know, we, we take the story of the guy who was fishing, you know, fell out of his canoe and he was picked up by these Kushtaka... They they took him to a village with other Kushtakas, um, and and where he met his aunt, who had become a Kushtaka. You know, it's almost like it is. It's just like I don't even know where how to even begin to to explain it. I mean, it, it it's like an ancient magic where a regular person can shapeshift into a Kushtaka, but they become a Kushtaka, almost like. You know, it's almost more akin to to the Wendigo than a skinwalker because with a Wendigo, you know, a Wendigo can turn other people into Wendigos, but they've, they're always going to be a Wendigo. It's not like, just like the Kushtaka can turn other people into a Kushtaka, but it's always going to be a Kushtaka, and it always was a Kushtaka. You know, at, at somewhere, I would venture to guess that the Kushtaka and the Wendigo share a common ancestor. Um, but what that is, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure you could get into the lore and, you know, and, and these lores, they're, they're not just stories. They're, they're histories. These are histories of, of these people. Um, there's no reason why we should 
treat them as cautionary tales. They they're they are more like histories. So yeah, the Kushtaka, a shape shifting demon. That's what it is. It's a shape shifting water demon, pretty much. Um, and it definitely sounds almost canon to me. 